it's always rolling the dice. It's not 100% safe. And I leave it up to those people with that information to decide on their own whether they're going to stop flying or they're going to start driving instead. Because when it comes down to it, I'm not, again, as an individual going to make a change. It's going to need to be hundreds of thousands of people making that change in order to get these companies to start or stop doing what they're doing. Welcome to the latest episode of Extended. Email us now. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. It's time to talk aviation. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Today, our guest is Brian Wheels. Brian is an airframe and power plant mechanic who's worked across multiple aircraft types. He's worked in aviation maintenance supervisory and management positions, and he's extremely passionate about aircraft safety. He's also the host of the podcast, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, the aviation maintenance industry raw. So Brian, I'm delighted to have you on. Welcome to Extended. Well, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. No, and, and where are you calling us from uh, in the world today, Brian? I'm on the western part of the U.S. right now. Right, okay. N nice weather? Yes, actually, we've been up in the 70s and 80s, but uh, tomorrow uh, we have a winter storm warning. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the U.K. That's, that's, that's normal <laughs> weather for us. Listen, Brian, thank you so much for joining us um, today. I want to talk a little bit about the aviation maintenance industry, particularly airliners uh, and airline maintenance. But what I want to understand a little bit about first is your background. How, how did you get involved in, in, in aviation and how did you come in to be um, an aviation maintenance mechanic? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I've been in aviation maintenance forever. Right now, it's been 15 years. Um, I went to AMP school uh, in the very early uh, 2000s. And at that time, aviation as a whole was a very booming industry. Um, and pretty much how I found it was after high school, I graduated, figuring out what I wanted to do. And I saw an ad on the TV about an aviation college. And this commercial was really centered around uh, make great money, have an illustrious job, retire early, have everything you ever wanted to, and make a difference in aviation. And it was a really different type of commercial than the others that try to promote uh, aviation as a whole. Right. So a young kid out of high school, I, I thought that'd be a great opportunity to uh, make money and get rich quick, or so I thought. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> um, what did you study? Were, were there particular qualifications that you needed to be an AMP mechanic? Well, no, you just go to an A&P school, and if you go to an accredited A&P school, um, you don't have to have a background in aviation. And so you go there, they teach everything, all the basics that you need to know. And uh, in my day, it was a two-and-a-half-year course. And uh, nowadays, you can get through it in you know 12 to 18 months, which is not that bad. Right, okay. And, and once you've done that, Brian, I presume you're at some sort of base level. Do you then specialize in a particular aircraft because obviously just by the name of amp you you can even go airframe type uh mechanical work or or power plant or do you go both or how does that work well our licensing structure here in the u.s is actually a little bit different than our brothers up in the canadians um in canada you're uh essentially 
certificated to work on different aircraft types, and you have to have uh, X amount of training on certain aircraft types in order to get that type of rating. Whereas here in the United States, um, you know, you have a, a combined aviation, I'm sorry, an airframe and power plant rating. You can have an individual uh, power plant or um, airframe rating. And you can have an avionics background, or you could just go into avionics uh, singularly on yeah. its own. But uh, both AMPs, aviation maintenance, were primarily regulated under 14 CFR Part 43 and Part 65 Subpart D, and that those FARs, those Federal Aviation Regulations, really govern the premise of what an aircraft mechanic can or can't do. But an airframe and power plant mechanic and, uh, who are certificated or our term slang is licensed, um, pretty much everything under the rainbow on an aircraft we can touch. And um, the, the FARs go back very, very, very far. <laughs> the FARs go back very, very far in history. <laughs> and some of it is yeah. quite antique, uh, and, antique, 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 antique equated. Antique equated? You know what I mean. Yeah. It's old. And, and antiquated. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we have a, a mixed match of different federal aviation regulations that right. uh, govern both an AMP and aircraft maintenance but those are primarily the ones that govern amps uh, again is 14 cfr part 43 and then part 65 but then you have additional parts for air carriers uh, part 121 135 91 and then part 145 which is the governance and standards of the facilities themselves that perform that maintenance wow that that's i mean i know that's your day job but that sounds very complex to me. Um, um, when you qualified uh, uh, as an AMP mechanic, how did you then go into um, the airline business? How did you go into mainline maintenance work? What did you start sure. focusing on? Sure, sure. So while I was in AMP school, there was talk about, and the instructors actually encouraged the students to think about what they wanted to do specialized. Uh, go to GA, go to commercial, GA's uh, general aviation, uh, go to commercial, uh, regional, uh, business jets. You know, they encouraged the students to try and find their niche. And for me, um, I had a particular power plant instructor who was a 25 year plus vet from the various classic airlines, uh, TWA, uh, Pen Air, um, even Braniff 3, you know, the, all the, the classics of the day. Yeah. And wow. he had a, <laughs> he, he, he had been in the aviation industry long enough, but he taught our, our turbine theory classes. But he had this funny bias against reciprocating engines, or what we call piss and poppers. And that kind of rubbed off on me. And as I would talk to him, stay after class, discuss with him um, about his background, I quickly figured out that I did not want to work general aviation. I didn't want to work business jets. I wanted to stay with large commercial aircraft. And so I kind of knew what I wanted to do going out of AMP school. And I graduated AMP school again in the early 2000s. So I kind of had a vision where I wanted to end up. And I kind of knew where I didn't want to end up. So that first six months to a year out of AMP school, I was sending out resumes to airlines, manufacturers, uh, MROs, everyone who was accepting a position, or even if they weren't. So for about that six month to a year period, um, I did actually work in GA uh, twice. I worked for a fella at the uh, local airport. He had some warbirds that he needed a um, mechanic helper with okay. and i worked at another facility on the west coast for a little while meanwhile i mean again i'm putting out my resumes to all these airlines and these manufacturers but my first real experience in you know touching a large commercial aircraft um, i had gotten a job up in montana and i was wor working at an mro that did contract maintenance for the local airlines at the terminal and uh, they primarily worked with 737s, Embraer's, the occasional MD-80, a few Dash 8s, um, some Dash 7s. And I was paired with this elder mechanic who is pretty much close to retiring. Right. And um, he actually wanted to pass on his knowledge to a new guy like me. 
um, which is at that time, well, even still is, there are elder mechanics who prefer not to um, share their experience with younger mechanics because they feel threatened by that for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, knowledge is power. Yeah, Exactly. Knowledge is power. But this guy was a truly amazing mechanic. He was a genuine troubleshooting expert. And especially when it came to the systematic operation of 737s, uh, 757s, MD-80s, and I was amazed. So I asked him, I said, well, how, how do I become a shadow of you? And he said, well, it's easy. Go work for Boeing. Once you get your foot in the door and you can become as much of an expert as you do or don't want. And he said, Boeing will set you up. So I said, great idea. And, uh, <laughs> so I put out, uh, a resume at Boeing and, uh, probably three weeks later, I got a call from them and they said, Hey, you want to work on triple sevens? And wow. I said, okay. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> they literally sent me a credit card in the mail. And they said, move yourself and get yourself a place to live here in Washington state. As long as you commit to us two years, you don't have to pay us back. So I knew now that I'm going to go work for Boeing yeah. and I knew that I wanted to work on commercial aircraft, but now I also knew that I wanted to be an SME, a subject matter expert on some sort of aircraft. Yeah. And I wanted to work in the line environment. The line environment is what you, when you're at the airport at the terminal, you see the guys out there on the ramp. That's the line. And I knew I wanted to, at that time, I, I really was struggling between whether it was the 737, the 757, or a, a, another type of aircraft that I wanted to specialize in. And come to find out, the 37 and the 57 was going to be my bread and butter. So I got this this call from Boeing, and they said, here's a credit card, you know, pay pay whatever you want, get out here. And Boeing really kicked it off for me. And I Started at Boeing in the 777 program, right. and then I moved into the functional testing program for the 47 and then the 37 programs, and that was really cool. Yeah, and wow. It was, it was really at Boeing, and this is un, unlike many other companies. Boeing at that time, um, if you wanted to know about any aircraft, past or present production, you could go to as many classes as you wanted and get as in-depth as you wanted to do. Yeah. And I took advantage of that. And the funny thing is I had a girlfriend at the time and she actually dumped me because I was spending too much time <laughs> going to all these training classes instead of with her. Oh, and so really Boeing is what kicked it off for me. And right. when I knew that I wanted to be an SME, I knew I wanted to work on the line. I wanted to work on these large aircraft. Boeing was the job that kind of started it off for me. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about working on on the line because one of the things that actually frightens the life out of me, Brian, is what you can and can't sign off for, what you're responsible and accountable for, and and obviously we see a lot of this when there's accidents and incidents. It highlights all these things, but there's a massive amount of responsibility, isn't there, for the mechanic who. Um, who, when the pilot reports a fault, comes, fixes it, um, addresses the issue, and then is it in effect responsible for signing that aircraft and all those people's lives off? Well, yeah, that's absolutely right, and that's not just the line environment. That's any anywhere in the hangar. Um, anytime an aircraft mechanic puts a pen to paper, actually, when when they put their hand on the aircraft and then their hand to paper. Um, they're, they're taking on that responsibility. And about four months ago, I did a podcast called an aircraft mechanics liability and the consequences. Yeah. And I spoke to three separate aviation lawyers to really dive into the world of liability for an aircraft mechanic as far as the law says. And it all comes down to culpability. Um, an aircraft mechanic is in fact responsible for the aircraft the people who are flying on that aircraft, but also the people on the ground. Yeah. Um, you know, an aircraft is a machine that's fighting gravity. And when you look at it that way, that you're putting something in the air that is not meant to, God did not make that to be in the air. <laughs> we as people did. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of mechanics, they do not think about the legal consequences that can come about if something were to go wrong. And I talk about a few examples in that episode. So when we sign off, uh, paperwork. In this case, um, like you presented, we get a gate call and we have a write-up from an, an aircraft. Um, you know, 
the line environment is a little bit more different. It's probably a little bit more um, to some, not necessarily me. There's more stress. There's more yeah, quick, was, quick go go. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of pressure on on that mechanic to get that aircraft, which almost certainly is already loaded and ready to go out right. and on schedule, isn't there? Well, there is, and there are there are mechanics that wash out. They think they. They have this vision of going to the line, going out to the terminal and fixing these aircraft, but they, they have this vision of going out to the line to fix these aircraft so people can see them from within the terminal, but they don't understand that um, the pressures and stressors that aircraft mechanics face on the line is sometimes greater than the hangar where there's more flexibility with time. And this leads to a human factors issue in which I also have an episode about human factors. And there are mechanics who wash out. They cannot take the added pressures and stressors of working under uh, time constraints, parts constraints. And you really have to be able to think on your feet. And some will say you almost have to know the paperwork <laughs> and how to defer an aircraft better than actually wrenching on the aircraft because you can't fix everything. And that's why yeah. we have MELs, minimum equipment lists. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So if you're a, a, a line mechanic, uh, and you get that call. What is the scope of of things that you'd be responsible of for trying to address them, Brian? Because you can't be everything to everybody. You know, from an electronics engineer and something maybe in the cockpit through to something in the power plant. How how does that work? Have you got a a generalist knowledge to do only so much, or go as far as a particular sure. specification? How does that work? That's a great question. Um, it comes with experience. And back in my day, when I started in aviation, you could put as much resumes out to the line, you know, to work in the line environment. But many airlines, they would not let a brand new mechanic out of AMP school go to the line because they didn't know the aircraft. And they would send a lot of these mechanics to the hangar for two to three years, maybe even more. And it was up to that manager or that supervisor to allow that mechanic when they made a transfer request to say, okay, you do or don't have enough experience, in my opinion, to go to the line. So be able to determine um, exactly what is wrong with the aircraft. That partially comes with experience, but that's why we also file the tech pups, the aircraft maintenance manuals, the AMMs. And that's a place where the feds, the FAA, do ding mechanics on because in this stems into another human factor issue you can get so complacent doing the same thing over and over it's like okay i got a gate call i've had this a hundred other times i know exactly what to do with the aircraft and you don't know if the paperwork the the tech pubs have been updated if there's been a change but you go ahead and you're so complacent doing that same fix over and over that you don't review the paperwork and i tell new guys this all the time um, even me as much as i know a lot of these aircraft you know, there are things that I don't know, or there's things that I, I still have to double check in the yeah, tech pub. So yeah. you get a discrepancy and you arrive to the aircraft and, you know, the flight crew is going to say, okay, the discrepancies A, B, C, and D occurred. And you're going to go to a fault isolation manual or maybe, you know, the, the AMM or the wire diagram, the system schematic diagram. You're going to go and find either those fault codes or those, uh, conceivable errors that align with a particular problem. And so I guess really to sum it up, it, to, to know what to do and how to do it comes with experience and also always following the documentation. Right. And, and, and are there different grades of mechanic to, to, to give you that permission to sign off particular er elements or to be on a line? Are there different grades of, of mechanic? There, there's not, um, oh, on the line, okay. in the line, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, sh that sort of surprises me actually. Yeah. You don't have to have a certain, uh, well, let me, let me actually, let me go back. There's, there's gen fam, general familiarization training that mechanics should go to. Now I emphasize the should before they go either to the hangar or to the line, whenever they should, you know, going to touch an aircraft, but that's not always the case, especially, you know, post COVID, a lot of airlines are hiring these mechanics straight out of A&P school and not send them to GenFam for six or eight months. 
but they're letting them out there to touch the aircraft. And the reason why they do this, because there used to be, and it's not so much anymore, there used to be a problem with contractors, people who, who work on contracts, okay, contract maintenance. Um, contractors, what they would do is they got a new contract at a MRO, let's say. They would just show up for the GenFam training. And as soon as they got the 40, you know, 80, 120 hour class, then they would say, oh, I don't want to work for you guys anymore. And they would leave. So right, right. airlines don't want to pay for someone to sit in the seat if they think they're not going to stick around or they're just sticking around just for that gen fan. But I got a little off track there. No, um, und un so, understood, understood. <laughs> but there's no, uh, there, there's no in writing requirement per the FARS that says that, you know, uh, outside of having an A&P certification, that you have to know this, this, or that to touch an aircraft. Yeah. Um, a lot of that is left up to that company who that person works for. But on the line, when you're signing something off as rectified or resolved, you're actually signing the continued, I'm sorry, you're actually signing the continuous airworthiness of that aircraft. Whereas in the hangar, if the aircraft just went through a C check, yeah. a B check, a heavy, some sort of heavy check, yeah. it's not always the, a lot of times it's not the mechanic themselves signing off that aircraft is now airworthy. It's going to be a, a lead inspector or a head inspector, someone through, through the inspection department, sometimes even the customer rep that's signing that, that statement that's saying this aircraft is now airworthy to fly again. But on the right. line, right. that's what each of us individually are doing. Yeah. And um, before we go on to talk about um, some of your views and, and the podcast and the blog then, Brian, just one question that um, that sort of, highlighted to me is how much of that because you talk a lot about paperwork there and we we know about the paperless cockpit and the use of ipads and technology and and stuff like that how much of that has as as washed through to the to the maintenance environment you know do you go into the the cockpit when you get called with an ipad and and you know follow those those process chains that you mentioned earlier, the wire diagram or, or, or something like that? Or, or is it a big manual book? Well, it used to be. It, it, I would say about not, well, <laughs> all of them. At one point, every air carrier, airline aviation company had a logbook. Um, my last job, we actually had electronic, uh, both electronic logbooks and electronic uh, tablets for iPads for maintenance to bring with them and you just do the paperwork electronically now what i prefer is to stick with paper books um what i have found with the companies that i have worked for who use uh, ipads or a tablet whenever they have electronic logbook uh set up there's more downtime with trying to get these devices to work properly than to actually just <laughs> you know, write it on, write yeah. it on a piece of paper yeah. and you'll find a lot of cancellations. Well, I'm sorry, not cancellation delays because th that tablet that your company, Oh, just so much wants you to use. Cause it's so quick. Yeah. The thing doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you're going back to the office and you yeah. find out that there's no spares. And Brian, does that, whether it's paper or, or soft copy, when you sign that aircraft off or you sign that repair off, um, where does that go? Does it go back to the office and stay on the ground or does it go with the aircraft itself? Well, it stays. So the, in that example, that scenario, uh, the flight crew, they have their own version of the tablet. They have their electronic logbook. Yeah. And when I sign off the maintenance, it goes into a, sev uh, a central server and that also links up with the electronic flight book on the aircraft, which is separate from the maintenance side of the input of information. And then the other side goes to a stored server somewhere in the IT department. Right. Okay. I'll tell you why I asked the question, Brian, because I was just thinking when there's an incident or an accident, how is that record protected? That's why I was asking it, but that makes that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I understand. Um, so let me ask you, 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 you've had this career, you know, you love what you do. I think I can hear that you've got a passion about the work you do. Um, you, you produce a podcast and, and a blog that some would say might be a bit contentious. I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the listen. Um, what, why did you start? Why did you start the podcast? What, what was the, the inspiration, the drive 
that made you sure press that switch and say hey i need to start talking about this absolutely well it didn't come to me right away i was already about three maybe actually four four and a half years in aviation as a mechanic just enjoying myself and what i was doing um but the day that this thought came to me i was working at a uh, small mro in tucson arizona and uh I worked the night shift, and I was given a task to remove a fuel boost pump from an MD-80 that was outside, and it was in process of being scrapped. I was told to remove this wing boost pump, and this company's policy was whenever you remove a part from an aircraft, another aircraft, okay, it doesn't have to be just one that's being scrapped, the policy was you give it to the inspector, the inspector looks it over, and then they determine that they sent, sent it off to the its manufacturer to be uh, further inspected and overhauled. So that's what I did. I removed this fuel boost pump. I gave it to the inspector. I went back to the lead. And I said, hey, I'm done with the job. And he says, what do you mean you're done with the job? You finished up that MD-80 that's in the hangar. No, I didn't. I, I went out. My, the task card said, go and remove a fuel boost pump from the one that they're going to scrap. And I did that, but our policy says we give it to the inspector. That's what I did. He said, his lead says, no. He says, you don't understand. We didn't want you to give that to the inspector. We wanted you to put that boost pump right into that MD-80 that's still in the hangar that we have to get out. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) And uh, I said, well, that's not our policy. He says, well, okay, come with me. So he literally takes me by the hand. (laughs) And he walks me over to the, uh, the building where the supervisor was and on night shift with this particular supervisor, um, there was something wrong with him. Uh, it was rumored that he was mixing cocaine and Red Bull on his brakes. Because oh, wow. this guy was, I mean, he was a completely different person five minutes to five minutes. Every yeah. five minutes, he was a different person. Yeah. And so the lead brings me over to this supervisor and he says, hey, uh, Brian here, he's failing to follow instructions and i kind of look at him so what are you talking about phil i did exactly what our company policy says to do and the supervisor says well how about you not get yourself fired today go and get that boost pump i don't care if it came out of any other plane but we need to get that one in the hangar on its way and install that fuel boost pump in it and uh, i said no i don't feel that's right and he says okay so he walks me to my box and he says you're fired I said, all right. So I'm packing all my tools up and uh, <laughs> he's walking me out to the, the parking lot and the director of maintenance just so happens to be coming in the opposite direction. Now, the director of maintenance was the one who hired because I had already 737 experience and he they, they hired me to actually work on their 37s, not right. any other aircraft. Right. Okay. Well, so it's the same guy that hi- hired me. But he sees me walking with my, rolling my toolbox out, accompanied by the supervisor. And he said, he said, hey, what's going on? What's, what's happening? Before I even get a word out, supervisor says, oh, yeah, he's not following direction. He's being insubordinate. And uh, I look at him. I said, okay, that's not what happened. And uh, the DM, he says, well, tell me what happened. So I told him. I was given a task to remove a fuel boost pump from the MD-80 that's being scrapped. And per our policy, I'm to give it to the inspector. But instead, they wanted me to not do that, forego that policy, and put it in this MD-80. Yeah. And uh, the director of maintenance says, okay, look, he says, I don't want to lose you. He says, I'll tell you what we'll do. How about you go install that field boost pump in that plane, then give me the paperwork. I'll sign it off as if I did it. And oh, right then and there, I, I said, nope. Yeah. I said, please fire me. Please continue firing me. I'm done. Yeah, yeah. And this director of maintenance, he he's begging and pleading, following me all the way up to the parking lot. I'm loading my truck up. He said, please don't do this. Don't do this. I'm like, no, what you told me to do was illegal maintenance. I'm not going to be a part of it. Yeah. And it was that drive home to my apartment. The fleeting thought came in my mind because podcasts at that time, they weren't a thing. They were more yeah. of a fact than yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah I know. And <laughs> <laughs> I thought, man, I could just do a podcast about what just happened today. But fortunately, and as a side note, I already had a job lined up that I was going to go to. So I was going to quit this company. Yeah. But that was the first time, and it took four years, almost four and a half years to get there, that the thought of a podcast came into my head. Yeah. And then 
fast forward to about 2018 when I got married. Uh, now at that point, I've been in aviation for a long time and I was frustrated with the shenanigans and I call them shenanigans, the shadiness in the industry. And my wife said, Hey, you remember when you told me years ago that you want to do a podcast and now podcasts are popular. How about you just do it? Get this off your chest. And I said, nah, I don't want to do that. You know, who's going to listen to what I have to say. But then COVID started. We fast forward a couple years and COVID started. Yeah. And aviation got hit very bad. Yeah. And I was I was let go right along with other mechanics. And um I was still frustrated. And my wife says, "Okay, you have this time off and we're going to have a baby. We're going we're expecting our first baby." Wow, congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's, it's it's quite interesting being a parent, but Yeah. We have all this time off. And she said, how about you just do this podcast, get what's on your chest off. And so I did, I started recording directly into my phone, um, on my anchor app. Yeah. And I recorded some episodes on my phone and I felt so good about it. It's like, okay, well I'm telling people what it's not only what it's like to be a mechanic, but also what's actually going on in the industry. That's, I suppose, what grabs me from the content. and. Although the term controversial's often used, Brian, um, it's not controversial what you're saying. It's str- it's pretty straight. Something's not right, and rules or regulations, and there's a lot of them, look like they're being bent or broken. Uh, and what what you appear to be doing to me is just giving an inside picture to that. I I read. The article about you on Colleen Pettit's blog. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. Colleen's passionate about uh, airline safety, um, and, yep. and I've read much of her content about the lack of whistleblowing in the industry. There seems right. to be, a, and again, I can only assume and make these statements from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, but the culture in the business, and again, I can only speak for a, for for American because that's where you know we're getting this feedback from. Right. Just doesn't feel right. Well, it, it's it's not right. And as aviation has evolved, as these large airlines, even aviation companies, as they've evolved, they've figured out how to mislead the public because the perception. You go on any social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, you know, Instagram. All these different airlines and aviation companies, they have this this positive image out there that, you know, although you're going to have to pay us 1200 bucks to go one way, you're still going to be safe in doing so. Although you're only going to have 18 inches to sit, you're still safe in doing so. But what people don't know is that these companies have found out ways to to defraud the public. They, the, Many airlines, and I've met these groups, these individuals, they'll hire people whose background is psychology and they have dedicated groups, departments of people whose job it is to scour the web, to scour anything they can to find negative, anything negative about that company and to put a positive spin on it. And these people are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to defraud the public. And it's not just the airlines who are doing this. It's the FAA, the federal aviation administration they want their biggest excuse is we cannot promote and regulate aviation at the same time. Our hands are tied. They always say that. But my view on it is the FAA's job is not to promote business. Their job is to regulate. Leave it up to those individual companies, businesses to yeah. promote themselves because that's yeah. business. You either feast or famish in business. Yeah. But then you have the government, the governing entity of aviation. They're saying that you have these aviation companies who are defrauding or, or misconceiving the public on what's really happening. But then you have the Department of Transportation, which I've always liked the way the Department of Transportation here in the U.S. handles things because they're they're the they're like the president of everything aviation or not aviation, but transportation related. It doesn't have to be just aviation, and they have admonished the FAA and airlines over and over and over again. But you would think, well, 
if the Department of Transportation oversees all these different forms of transportation, why can't they, you know, come in, step in and say, okay, FAA, for example, we're not going to allow you to screw things up anymore. Well, there's one little clause that the Congress passed that says the Department of Transportation does not have enforcement over these individual entities, particularly the FAA. They cannot they cannot go after the FAA and say, okay, I'm your big brother. I'm telling you what you're doing is wrong because Congress stipulated that they have no enforcement power, the Department of Transportation, as it pertains to aviation. Only the FAA does. G'day, I'm Dave Homewood of the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's only regular aviation podcast series. The Wings Over New Zealand show covers all sorts of aviation topics, with a New Zealand flavour but an international appeal. From interviews with veterans and aviation personalities, to topics like military aviation, warbirds, air shows, historians, authors, museums, aviation events, and much, much more. We have an extensive archive of episodes that you can go back to, and there are new episodes coming out all the time. Search for the Wings Over New Zealand show. Oh, and by the way, we love Extended. It's a great show. Well done, guys. Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Now, Brian, um, I want to come back to safety because I think it's just such a, a, an important topic that you talk about. But the podcast isn't just about, and I'm using big air quotes here, whistleblowing type um, <laughs> right. investigations that, that you've done. Um, you also use your, your, your skills and expertise to analyze events, um, which right. I do find quite, quite interesting because a lot of the content that's out there that I listen to about accidents and incidents doesn't mm-hmm. come from people with the specialist knowledge to really right. understand causation and um, what may have uh, have led to this. So I've been really fascinated by by some of your discussions. Um, we we all saw the the DHL DHL seven five seven. Um, mm-hmm. recently run run riot off the the the, the side of a runway you you talked about that i thought that was really fascinating and of course the elephant in the room has been the bone 737 max and yep. the belief and i've seen a lot of stuff on social media about oh you know brian's bashing boeing you know <laughs> I, don't, I just don't get that i don't get that at all um and if anyone's listening to the program now and knows your background they won't get it either because you know you you've you're you're steeped in um you know in knowledge and experience of that Mm -hmm. so i've been really intrigued to see your approach and your comments about um some of those incidents because it comes from a very different perspective so let's not let the listeners think that it's it's just whistleblowing you do look at lots of areas of the industry and try to bring your experience as a uh, as a qualified AMP mechanic to those incidents. Well, and I do. Then that has been actually a uh, subject of complaint from some of my listeners is that I, uh, for a lack of better wording, branched out besides just talking about shadiness and shenanigans within aviation maintenance. Um, some people actually don't like that I talk about other things. I talk about just daily A&P struggles. I talk about uh, certain different topics in aviation. One of them happens to be, um, you know, I 
I do give my two cents only when asked though, really by, you know, people says, well, what do you think? Like the, the DHL, yeah. uh, five, seven incident and, you know, do, the, do you the just want to explain, to, to explain a little bit about your thought process on that? Cause again, um, the way you explained it was from your own perspective and it was a different, different set of glasses. We were looking at that incident through. What, what was well, your, well, your summary? What's your feel? How you explained that and your thought process? Sure. Well, I've worked um, high profile accidents before. I've been on uh, either uh, as a tech team advisor or employed by that, you know, uh, airline, aircraft companies themselves. And I, so I've actually been out there and recovered uh, several um, of these incidents over the years. And it's funny because people will talk about a aircraft incident or crash and they automatically go to, well, if it's a Boeing aircraft, uh, it must be MCAS. <laughs> or if it's a, you know, this DHL 57, well, it must be Boeing. And yeah. somehow that 57 has MCAS on it. The way that I approach these is I'm kind of, I've always been kind of um, struggle with it because I hate theorizing to and have someone twisted into speculation i always like to wait for the actual facts like when transair when transair had their three seven go down last year and fortunately the crew survived people were saying well what happened brian what happened and i was very hesitant on giving my two cents because i don't have the facts of what happened i wasn't there unlike yeah. some of the aircraft incidents and crashes that I have been a part of the investigation process on, um, I was right there. I could tell you what I think because I could see, smell, and touch the aircraft. But I have kind of gotten to that point where, okay, well, uh, like the DHL-57, um, you know, there was really good videos. There was really good photographs of it. And I just got to say this, who, who in the hell puts a ditch right next to a runway? So uh, <laughs> I didn't I, think of that, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that really there for? Well, fortunately though, the, the fire, uh, the ARF department was right there. But, yeah. um, when I was studying the, the videos and pictures of this five, seven, you know, you can see certain, uh, you can see the way that the control services and the secondary control services were moving. You can tell a little bit by the, uh, the sound, whether there was a thrust reverser and operative, which I believe there was. Um, obviously, you can see the landing gear was down when the aircraft had actually landed. You, I could see the action of the anti-brake system taking effect, although there was people saying, well, I, all I see is smoke. Well, if you look real closely, you can see the anti-lock brakes the uh the system the anti-lock system on the aircraft or anti-skid i'm calling it anti-lock it's actually called anti-skid you could see it pulsating right okay. um and so i just give my perspective based upon what we know from the recordings from atc what i know from watching the videos the pictures but even then i'm always very i make it a point to uh caution people that it might not be what i said it could be that we still have to wait for the news. And China Eastern, that's another one. That's something that is really just driven by bias. It's driven yeah. by propaganda more yeah. than anything else. But I just kind of give my perspective based on what we what I can see and what we know for sure. But I do not like speculating, well, it could have been this system, it could have been that, you know, it could have been whatever. Because then if it's not, People can come back and say, well, Brian, you misled us. And that's not what I'm about is misleading people. Okay. You know, that's, in that's interesting. That's an interesting summary. So uh, thanks for that. Just on that uh, China 737 and certainly the news that's now starting to appear m makes us think it may have been human intervention. But uh, let's wait, wait and see. Bless all the souls who, who, who lost their lives in it. So, Brian, what is it that? Let, and this is my words and no one else. Why are the authorities not liking what you're saying? And, uh, you know, and, and the work that you do, people like Carleen do. Um, why is there not a culture of, of openness? In in the industry I work in, in the, in the UK, which is a, it's a service business. We use heavy plant, heavy equipment. Um, we've got not only whistleblowing opportunities, but we've got the responsibility as individuals to say stop 
And if anybody on that location feels unsafe, feels there's an issue, they're allowed to say stop and the business has to stop and give them credence, listen, investigate and so forth. Now, I understand the airline industry can't quite work in, in that way, but why does there appear to be this culture that uh, people don't feel safe to view their 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 fears, their worries, their concerns about particular practices and processes in the industry. Sure. Well, another another very good uh, series of questions. See, the big thing with aviation, it is a multi 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 billion dollar industry, and the executives that work at these large airlines and even aviation companies they are getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars in both accumulative pay and bonuses. And they're going to lose it. The reason why there are airlines and uh, folks that do not like what I say, or companies, folks and companies that don't like what I say, is because they stand to lose money. Money drives aviation. Money trumps safety. And, and that it is just that simple. And there are people that would disagree this. Well, that can't be possible. They can't, they, all these companies, it's not possible that they don't think of safety. Well, it is because I've sat in the very same room with these executives and I have seen them laugh and just slough off the, the possibility of an incident or accident. You know, they, they say things like, well, that's why we got insurance or that's why we have money set aside. And that's absolutely what they do. They have billions of dollars set aside that is not touched by anyone, but it's used as payout money to shut up families, uh, families of victims. And it's a it's an egregious act Um, when someone like me comes around and says, "Okay, wait, 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 let me let me tell you what really goes on. Let me really tell you about the retaliation, the culture, the toxic atmosphere at these companies. They stand to lose money now. I'm a small time podcaster. There's, there's no way that me on my own is going to enact any real change, but I provide the information to the public so that the public at large and in mass can go to these government entities, can go to their congressmen, their senators, they can reach out to these companies or they can choose not to fly anymore. And believe it or not, there is a magic number. It, well, there's a magical range uh, in which an airline will see that their income, their profit is 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 no more, and they will start looking into complaints from people, and that number is around seventeen to twenty million dollar loss in a quarterly fiscal year. Um, once they see that they're having such a huge loss, they then start diving into customer complaints and. They very rarely look at a customer's complaint as it comes in. It just goes into a folder. It goes into a special file. But when they start seeing that magic number, again, that's between 17 and $20 million, start to hit them negatively, then you're, you're, and you see this actually, you, you see this all the time when, well, look, look at the China Eastern's crash. I mean, people do not want to fly on China Eastern because they feel it's dangerous and they lost money. Yeah. And you'll see these companies coming out on social media primarily saying, okay, well, now we're going to make this change. We're going to make this change. And the FAA, they do the same thing. You know, they fired a lot of people at the FAA just to get another knucklehead in there who, who doesn't really care. So I'm a threat to these companies because they stand to lose money because I'm talking to people so they can become educated and make that decision. Because I never tell people you should or you shouldn't fly. But you need to know that there is, it's always rolling the dice. It's not 100% safe. And I leave it up to those people with that information to decide on their own whether they're going to stop flying or they're going to start driving instead. Because when it comes down to it, I'm not, again, as an individual going to make a change. It's going to need to be hundreds of thousands of people making that change in order to get these companies to start or stop doing what they're doing. Fascinating stuff, Brian. If you want to hear more about that approach, if you want to hear more about some of the experiences Brian uh, uh, reports on, talks about and investigates, then you need to go over and look up 
the podcast. Brian, it's been a fascinating discussion. Where where can we find you online? Where can we find the blog and the podcast? Sure, it's aviationmxtruth.com. One word, aviationmxtruth.com. That'll bring you to the website. Um, you can listen to the podcast and all the your your most popular podcasting uh, setups. You know, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon. I'm there, and all the information is on the website, aviationmxtruth.com. And you'll also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Good, bad, ugly. Right. Well. We will put uh, links to all of those in the show notes. Fascinating discussion, Brian. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been quite a pleasure. Well, that's it. We'd like to thank Whitehearts and Peter Dixon, as well as the wider extended family of supporters, including, of course, Mick Oakey and his team at The Aviation Historian. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter, and you can find Tim, Gareth and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook and Instagram feeds. And that's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Brian. Goodbye, folks. Take care and be safe. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended would like to thank its partners, Global Aviation Resource, the Royal Aeronautical Society and XTP Media for their support in helping to present and produce the program. Our legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website. Please do ask before using anything you hear. The program is produced with a Creative Commons license. It's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Knowing how to recognise a store being taught like visually and the basic PPL, it wouldn't bother me. Thanks for listening to Extended. And don't forget, we want you to contact us. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk is the email address you need. Extended. This is XTP Media.